You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. Welcome to this BJSM podcast. We're going to talk about things genomic and uh, understand what is the potential for the new discoveries in genomics to uh, help physical activity and health and behaviour change. And the expert who's going to help us um, on that issue is Tim Caulfield. And he's a Canada Research Chair at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. And he's speaking to us from that snow-filled province at the moment. Tim, welcome to this BJSM podcast. Hello. And um, why don't you tell us what's happened since the human genome has been discovered? What was the big medical advance there? Well, you know, the Human Genome Project was, as, as all your listeners know, you know, just a massive endeavor that really took place largely in the 1990s, finished up, you know, 2000, 2001, 2002, around, around that era. And since then, and since then there, the ability to, to do genetic testing, to sequence human genomes, um, has become much more efficient. It has become much cheaper. Um, going from really being hundreds of millions of dollars to sequence a human genome down to what people are predicting, and I think this is a, a fair prediction, to under $1,000 U.S. To, to, to actually sequence an entire genome. So, you know, this really is a staggering technological advance, uh, and no one can take anything away from that. In addition to that, you know, we really have uh, sort of uncovered the complexity uh, and that's part of the, I think, an important part of the story, the phenomenal complexity of the role between, between our genome uh, and human traits and, you know, human disease. Um, and so this, you know, the, the science has moved forward at an, incredible, at an incredible pace. With that, for sure, we have uh, received, you know, <laughs> the healthcare systems around the world, uh, the ability to, to, to diagnose uh, genetic uh, diseases and, and the relationship, uh, in some cases, uh, and uh, the relationship between highly penetrant genes and, and some chronic diseases for cancer. So we, have had, we do have more genetic tests that can diagnose genetic diseases. We do have this phenomenal, uh, this phenomenal genetic tool at our fingertips. What's becoming very interesting is from a healthcare perspective, both um, for chronic diseases and, uh, and, prevent, uh, and prevention, um, how useful is this information, really? And I think that's the, the challenge that we're facing now all around the world. And how useful is it really, Tim? Well, this is something I'm, I'm fascinated in because, uh, uh, you know, we, we here at the University of Alberta have been you know, trying to really explore that from a sort of a health system perspective. Um, and, you know, I'm a skeptic, <laughs> a little bit of a skeptic. I guess I'm more than a little bit of a skeptic. Um, first, I, I'm, I'm a big... I'm a big fan of the science. I think it's a phenomenally important area to, to continue doing research, and it is genuinely exciting um, as for some of the reasons I've already stated. You know, the, tech, the technology is moving forward at an incredible, incredible pace, and we are sort of uh, gaining an understanding of, the, the, uh, of human genes and their, and their role in disease. But it's very, at this point, it's, there's still a lot of questions. Uh, and what's fascinating to me is, is genomics, and, and I'm sure that many of your listeners have already seen this, is being sold to us as, as creating this new personal, personalized medicine revolution. And, and what is behind that is the idea that we can all get our genes tested, 
We can all go, whether it's done in a private clinic or in, perhaps we'll do it in our public health care systems in the future, we'll all get our genes tested. And with that information, we're going to be able to tailor our lives in a way that will improve health, right? This whole idea of, of tailoring health care to our genes, tailoring our, our, our behavior to our genes, uh, and thus improving our health. I'm very skeptical of that whole approach. Uh, I just don't think the evidence says it's going to be, in the aggregate, uh, very beneficial. Okay, and so that's the public health message. It's not the solution for public health. What about at the individual level? Um, well, let's you know let's, let's sort of unpack it even at the even at the public health level. So why why am I a skeptic? Well, first of all, um, if we've learned anything since the sequencing of the human genome, we have learned, as I as I hinted at before, that the relationship between genes and disease is phenomenally complex. Um, you know, I've been following this since the 1990s. It's been a big part of my career since then. And I can remember when we believed, in fact, I was doing a fellowship at this time, we thought, you know, we, we, we found the BRCA1, BRCA2 genes, and these are genes that, that are relatively highly predictive for breast cancer. And we have things like the colorectal genes, you know, that are relatively highly predictive for col colorectal cancer, and they are actually quite predictive. And we, I, I think there was a belief we were going to find a whole bunch of these highly penetrant diseases. Uh, 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 genes. That really hasn't played out, right? That really hasn't played out. We don't have a whole bunch of highly predictive uh, genes that you can test for. They're going to tell you with any kind of degree of accuracy whether you're going to get a, uh, a disease. What, in fact, you have is a whole bunch of sort of hints that, you know, slight increases in, in disease risk um, that suggest that you might be more uh, more uh, likely to get a chronic disease like heart disease or, or maybe even uh, obesity uh, or, or, or what have you, right, various, various kinds of cancer. But those increases in risk are very, very small, and we can't really do anything with those, those increased risks. In fact, invariably what the suggestion is that you exercise, eat lots of fruits and vegetables, you know, don't drink too much alcohol, don't smoke, all things that we should be doing anyway. So finding out these increased risks doesn't really add that much benefit. In addition to that, well, people say, oh, well, um, that may be, but perhaps people are going to be more motivated. They'll, they'll go in, they'll get their tests done, they'll find, oh, my gosh, I'm at increased risk for heart disease. It looks like I'm at a little increased risk for this kind of cancer. Uh, I, this is going to motivate me to start changing my behavior. Well, that's interesting on, on two fronts. First of all, the existing evidence, there's not a whole bunch of it, but there is some evidence that shows that's not the case. Right? People don't change their behavior significantly and over the long term based on genetic risk information, number one. Number two, why would they? <laughs> why would they? When we already know that things like our weight, uh, you know, what the weight scale says, our, what the circumference of our waist is, what our blood pressure is, what our cholesterol is, is quite predictive of future health problems. And most people don't change their behavior based on that information. Like, there are very few genetic tests that are as predictive as a blood pressure test, uh, your weight or your waist circumference, uh, and people don't change their behavior based on that. So it should be no surprise that they rarely change their behavior based on genetic risk information. Now, now to be clear, we're not talking about the monogenetic diseases like cystic fibrosis or Huntington's disease where they're completely penetrant, completely predictive. We're talking about these, these chronic diseases. Uh, and, and, and remember, that's largely how the human genome project, the genetic revolution has been sold, that we're going to solve all these sort of bigger problems or at least have a great impact on all these big chronic disease problems. And there are many reasons to be skeptical that it's going to have the big impact that has been promised.
And Tim, even with cystic fibrosis and uh, Huntington's, would you say that the knowing that genomics has helped those patients in the past 20 years? Well, you know, that's, that's also a very interesting question um, because uh, research has shows, you know, people when, they, when they first found Huntington's disease, which is a, a gene, which was actually quite a while ago, uh, I think there was a belief that, that people would want to get tested, find out what their disease risk is, and, you know, modify their life accordingly. In fact, what turns out is people that are at risk for the Huntington uh, disease, whether because they have a family member, most people don't get tested. They don't want to know. So even in that situation where you have a highly penetrant gene, it's unclear about on an individual level what, how people use this information and whether it's useful to them or not. Um, you know, it may have a big impact on reproductive decisions for sure. And this, again, is with these highly predictive genes. Uh, and it undoubtedly is having, uh, you know, an impact on the research in those areas, which is very great. You know, that's exciting stuff. Uh, but again, sort of this preventative uh, approach, the impact has been to date relatively, relatively uh, small. Let's talk about uh, the, the drugs issue, the personalized medicine briefly mm -hmm. before we talk about your test results when you tested your own uh, genome for your sporting prowess. Um, Tim, the idea is that people who need to take statins, for example, could get a customized drug or they'll uh, minimize their side effects by knowing their human, their, their genome results. Um, is that going to be the case? I do think um, this is an exciting area of, of the field, right? Um, I do think, and this is already happening in, in some areas, both with uh, the stratification of patients, in other words, like uh, determining uh, you, you have cancer and then determining what kind of cancer you have and what kind of drugs will work best for you based on both the, the genotyping the tumor, not just the individual, but genotyping the tumor and the individual, I, uh, and then de determining how, what's going to be the most effective course of treatment. I think that is an exciting area that's going to play out. In addition to that, there's this hope that we're going to be able to tailor, may, tailor all of the drugs to suit individuals. So in other words, you'll find out your genome is as a result of that information, uh, they will select, they being the healthcare system or your, your physicians, will just select what kind of drug would work best for you. Uh, again, an exciting area, but it just isn't playing out as, as sort of promised. You know, it is, in fact, uh, the, the data to date has not been as, let's say, robust as, as hoped. You know, I think that, that lots of the research, and I, and I re often reference one on on drugs for uh, for depression, has found it very difficult to find uh, genetic markers that are highly predictive of what kind of drug you should be taking um, for for um, future uh, to to benefit your future health. Uh, so it just isn't playing out uh, as as sort of uh, revolu in a revolutionary manner as often promised. And that should be no surprise because science, you know, if you look at the history of science, particularly in the context of health it always moves forward sort of in this iterative ma manner. So, you know, I'm hopeful that we're going to continue to have breakthroughs in certain areas, uh, but is it going to be this wash of new drugs that's going to emerge over a couple of years? No. We're going to see, you know, drugs sort of trickling out that may have more benefit, be more, pen uh, more uh, beneficial as a result of genetic testing, but we're not going to see, I think, in the short term sort of this revolutionary change uh, in how we, we deal with uh, drugs. So then you went and got yourself tested. Uh, yeah, I did. I did. And this is, I think, an interesting um, sort of cautionary tale, <laughs> an example of the limits of, 
uh, of genetic testing. So I went to 23andMe and got my, my genes tested, uh, which is, you know, 23andMe is probably the best known of, of all the private genetic testing companies. Uh, i very impressed in how they, they, they did it, and, and I'm sure there are many listeners that have actually got it done at one of these companies. 23andMe presents the information in a very digestible manner. I found it fun. I found it entertaining. Um, I actually even found they, they give you your, your genetic risk for a variety of diseases, and then you can, they link you to uh, other studies. So it's even educational in a way. All that stuff is great. Did I find anything out that it was useful for my health? No, uh, I didn't. You know, uh, again, I, I'm at increased risk for a variety of diseases, colorectal uh, cancer, heart disease, um, you know, some other nasty things. It's not fun to read about yourself. Uh, decreased risk for other things. Uh, but the, the recommendation is always the same, you know, eat lots of fruit and vegetables, exercise, you know, make sure you maintain a healthy weight, don't drink too much, and, you know, don't smoke, all of the things that we should be doing anyway. And the other interesting thing, of course, that, uh, you know, it's worth, worth reflecting on is, remember, the whole, a big belief is this whole behavior change idea, right? This idea that we're going to be able to change our behavior for the good as a result of these, of, of this genetic testing. Uh, but for every, you know, most genetic risk is probably on a bell curve. So for everyone who's at an increased risk, there's a group that's at a decreased risk. So if you buy the, the behavior change idea, and I don't, as I've already said, but even if you did, you've got to believe it's going to go both ways, right? So you're going to have those that are increased risk, those that are decreased risk. Those that are increased risk are going to improve their behavior. Those that are decreased risk are going to have less healthy behavior. So in the end, uh, in the aggregate, in a population level, you end up at the same place or maybe even a little bit lower because more people are probably uh, prone to, to being motivated to act more lazily than they are to, you know, to be acting, acting more healthily. So, so that's an interesting paradox that's often lost in the discussion. But the other interesting thing I got with my, my genetic test is you know, I've, I've been a sprinter my whole life. Um, I love sprinting. I've been sprinting since I was a kid. And, you know, to be, uh, to be honest, I was always really pretty quick. I was always like the fastest kid in my class. I joined a track team and I, you know, I had some measure of success, certainly enough success that I, that I really enjoyed the sport and did it all the way into to university. You know, I won some big races and lost a lot of big races. But, you know, it was enough that, it was, that sprinting became a big part of my life. I met my wife on the track team. Um, a lot of my best friends that I still have today uh, are from track and, and field. Um, and so it's been a big, hugely positive part of my life that, that continues to this day. Um, I got my genes tested to find out whether I had a sprinting gene or not. And 23andMe tells me I'm an unlikely sprinter and should probably pick another sport. So isn't that, you know, if I got tested when I was two, my whole life would have played out differently. So it is just very interesting, you know, uh, I'm certainly n never made it to the Olympics, um, but there are a lot of Olympic athletes, a lot of Olympic sprinters out there, uh, jumpers and sprinters that don't have the sprint gene. Sure, uh, most probably do, but there are some that don't. So, you know, it's a really interesting example of how you can't let genes sort of determine your future and, and also the complexity of, of sort of genetic um, predispositions or the role of genes in, in human traits, I think, is illustrated uh, in that example. That is a fantastic story. And uh, it just leads us to the last sort of sporting question. At the VJSM, you know, doping is an issue that we have to deal with. And uh, there's the idea that there'll be gene therapy and people doping in mm -hmm. uh, Olympic 
sports and competition with gene therapy. So can you just give us a short story on where you think gene therapy is at at the moment, particularly in the sporting um, context? Yeah, I, I mean, I do think that is an interesting an interesting spin to this this story. Now, as every all your listeners probably know, uh, gene therapy has been tied to the you know genetic revolution from the beginning. In fact, if you go back to the 1990s and even the late 80s, uh, it was uh, the whole idea of investing in genetics was often sold on the idea that we were going to have a whole bunch of different kinds of gene therapies. Um, it just hasn't panned out. Again, another really good example of how you know sort of the, the pro- initial promises weren't fulfilled, and that's absolutely fine. That happens in science all the time, but it's it, you know it's important to re- to recognize that you know gene therapy is again moving forward very very slowly. We're we're seeing the, the the knowledge that has been acquired through that that research being applied in other fields such as stem cell research. Um, but uh, uh, to date, we don't really have that many examples of very effective uh, gene therapies, and part of it is just how do you get the gene into the into into the human body and to behave in a way that you you want it to. That said, uh, it is theoretically possible that in the future we may be able to use gene therapy as a way to modify the human body. Uh, to, for example, to have more quick twitch muscles. You know, maybe that's something I could have done in my childhood, and I would have made it to the Olympics. Um, and then I'd probably be working in a shoe store now instead of being a professor, but. I shouldn't say that, <laughs> but uh, um, so that is a definite possibility. The other interesting thing about it is how would you test for it, right? How would you, how um, would you, um, as a sort of a monitoring, and in what way would a sporting body ensure that athletes have a gene dope? Are, you, are people going to have to show their genome at the beginning of, you know, when they were born, and then they would map it on to what their genetic profile is at the day that they competed it? You know, how are they going to do that? And maybe that technologically they could be, they could do that. I'm not sure. But, but for sh- I, I do think in the future we are going to see, and when I say in the future, I'm talking 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, uh, I think the idea of modifying ourselves through gene therapy to, pre- to perform better or to increase your chances of performing better will be a possibility. Well, Tim, you've given us a wealth of information there. Thank you so much. And just before we leave it, um, maybe just remind the listeners of your paper in Science that created quite a bit of controversy, I'd say, in February of 2011. Sorry, in February. That's right. It was a a paper that I I wrote with a number of colleagues uh, where we we call it deflating the genomic bubble. And it really wasn't meant to be. It's kind of ironic because it really wasn't meant to be negative. On the contrary, we were trying to say, you know, it's bad for the whole field to to overhype overhype this this area uh it's you know it's bad for um the so the long term sustainability uh of of genomic science to promise too much uh too soon and and we talk about a lot of things that we we covered in our discussion today so uh i hope that your your listeners find that to be a, a good resource we'll uh link to that and people can follow you on twitter at at corfield tim that's at corfield tim and follow you're a very prominent academic uh, in social media, and that's another topic which uh, great to to have you driving that agenda forward as well and communicating so well and doing such a great job of what is often called knowledge translation and implementation, Tim. So great pleasure to have you on, on the call. Tim's a Canada researcher in health law, and it's been a great privilege talking to you today, Tim. Uh, my pleasure. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com.